loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Mirabai Starr. Mirabai writes creative nonfiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico in Taos for 20 years and now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and inspiration inter-spiritual, I tongue-twisted on that, dialogue. Um, A certified bereavement counselor, Mirabai helps mourners harness the transformational power of loss. We share some language there. She's received critical acclaim for her revolutionary new translations of the mystics. She's the author of the poetry collection Mother of God, Similar to Fire, a collaboration with iconographer William Hartz McNichols, and the award-winning book God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Her newest book, Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation, is the winner of the Spirituality and Practice Best Books of 2015 Award, and she lives with her extended family in the mountains of north northern New Mexico. Welcome, Mirabai. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be with you. I, I really appreciate being with you, and I just want to say how much, how, how moved I was by your book. Um, the, you. I was, I was very, uh, um, I felt as if I was experiencing your book as I was reading because it was so um, deeply told. So I thank you for that. Mm, what a beautiful phrase, deeply told. I like that. <laughs> That's how it felt, for sure. And, of course, um, you you start sort of at... The, your your prologue, to me, is almost like starting at the end and then going back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, uh, I, 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 you know, sometimes things that actually happen in life... Uh, if you wrote them in a fictional, in a novel, people would be hard-pressed to believe it. Yeah. But um, I was so, so struck by the fact that, uh, of course, the book is about your daughter's death, and but, but your life leading up to that moment and after. And the idea that on the day that happened, you received... Your your book, The Dark Night of the Soul, in the mail, is just staggering. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I I'd like to leave some room for you just to, you know, did, when that happened, were you staggered by the connection, or was it more just shock and later thinking about that? Yeah, I think it, I think it came more later. That's funny. Nobody's ever asked me that question, nor have I even asked myself. But just to be clear, for for those of you who are listening, so my first book I've written fourteen books, and my first book was a translation 
of Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross, the 16th century Spanish mystic. And it's really a classic mystical work, and it, it's a text that had been deeply important to me for, for many years. I was 40 um, at this point. I just turned 40. And I had really re- resonated with this book, which is about abiding in the emptiness, and that when we drop down into that kind of naked, empty state that looks like sorrow or depression, um, but when we allow ourselves to really be in it, then this this uh, vast, numinous love, really, uh, divine love, seeps into that empty space, and it's a, it's a sign of spiritual maturity or something something along those lines. So that was Dark Nights of Soul. So I translated it in a fresh contemporary language. And the day that that first, my first copy of the book, it was, it had not yet come out, um, the public had not yet seen it. It was my advanced copy, was delivered to my door. Half an hour later, the police came to the door to tell me that my 14-year-old daughter, Jenny, had been in a car accident and had been killed. So I, yes, I didn't, uh, I didn't probably get the connection between the dark night of the soul as, as a work that I had spent my lifetime, um, preparing for, you know, doing, crafting this, this translation with all my love and all my energy, and then experiencing the, the most radical loss and plunge into the darkness that I could have ever imagined. I don't think it took me too long after that to go, oh my God, dark night of the soul. I thought I knew what that was, but I had no idea until now I'm beginning to get a glimpse and I don't like it. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I loved in the prologue, um, after you described what what he meant by dark, dark night of the soul, Uh, You say, this is, according to John of the Cross, a blessing of the highest order. Tell that to the mother of a dead child. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, of course, with any catastrophe, there are people that are going to say it's a blessing in disguise. And it's, you know, (laughs) all the things, all the platitudes people say, but they're so premature. But for for that to happen in the midst of, of... um, being so exposed to that idea is yeah. is quite um, profound, I think. Yeah, I mean, so much so that when I, I actually was being interviewed for a podcast um, by Tammy Simon of, of Sounds True a few years ago, and I was telling that story, and she said, Mirabai, <laughs> this needs to be a book. And I, um, I had always known that there, that I needed to write about that connection between Jenny's death and the teachings of the dark night of the soul, but uh, somehow I needed that invitation to to finally do it because I had been translating the mystics and was very happy hiding behind all of these great wisdom figures that I had been translating and writing about for for a number of years. At that point, it was it was very uh, risky to tell my own story. I was already known, um, you know, in my field as a translator and commentator on the mystics and you know, a teacher of meditation and like things like that. But, but it was, uh, this book, as you well know, Cheryl, is very naked. Well, that's what I was going to say, that you, you really um, 
I suppose you could have managed to expose less and still <laughs> tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't try to, as far as I can tell. Um, and I guess one way I could look at the book is as a... Um, a series of losses in a way. It, it caught my attention because I notice how with each, you know, my my huge transformation happened with the death of my wife, but I've had many other losses. And right. I notice they, uh, they, they fold into each other in a sense or... Um, you know, one one affects the next, affects the next, and because I grow, <laughs> I yeah. guess. Um, so I was I was captured by, you know, many profound losses that you had before that time that, of course, radically influenced your your family and your life. Could you talk some about those, uh, you know, previous losses to the loss of your daughter? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, uh, your question connects with something I'm in the middle of working on, actually, that I just finished, which is that I was I was asked um, to write the foreword to a new edition of Stephen Levine's book, Unattended Sorrow, uh, which is a great honor. And um, so I've just finished it, and I'm addressing that that very issue in in my foreword, which Stephen addresses throughout the book, and, and that is this understanding that all of our losses are connected and that every loss impacts our being, our bodies, our spirit, and that if we don't show up for them with tenderness and compassion and attention, then they're likely to, to cause greater suffering and sometimes in unexpected and seemingly unrelated ways in our lives. And so I I agree with you that there's this connection between every loss that we've ever experienced and the more profound radical losses, the more, um, the deeper in a way our well of, of loss becomes. And when Jenny died, it was like I was plunged into this deep, dark well, and in it, I realized, I recognized all of the other losses that I have ever had, and I will speak about them in a minute, but first I just want to say that moving forward, what I noticed, I haven't really talked about this, but I'm sure many of you will relate. After Jenny died, especially in that first year or two, anytime anything happened that was the slightest bit painful or difficult, whether it was a, a cold-hearted clerk in a in a store being kind of rude to me, or um, you know, or the or a relationship that somehow was strained, or anything at all, mostly interpersonal kinds of challenges. I it was like my heart broke open and it went directly to the death of my daughter. It was mm, almost yes. like, how dare you do anything to me <laughs> that would hurt? Because I am carrying this unbearable burden. Um, And so I noticed it in that direction also, that not only did my loss of my daughter connect to all the losses previously, but I had very low tolerance for any other kind of pain. It It went directly down that channel into my broken heart. Uh, for grieve, you know, of grieving my child. But 
to answer your question about these other losses, yeah, I think I've had a lifetime of an, an unusually high volume of personal losses, deaths, um, deaths especially. And, and the book, I realized when I started writing this book about the connection between the death of my daughter and, and the teachings of the Dark Knight of the Soul, that I couldn't talk about Jenny's death without reference to all of these other losses. And so the, when I was seven, my 10-year-old brother died of a brain tumor. And he was, you know, my big brother, my idol. When I was 14, my first love, Philip, was, was killed in a, in a gun accident when he and his brother were, were shooting at coyotes that were chasing their chickens. We live in, in rural New Mexico. Um, and, you know, my father died when I, was, when I was 30, which felt way too young, also of cancer. And I was um, molested by my first spiritual teacher when I was, when I was 15, And actually that went on for a number of of years, and it was a deep, dark, complicated situation uh, in which I finally ended up marrying him, hoping that that would make it okay, and um, it didn't. So I'm I'm leaving out other losses, but there have been many deaths in my life of close friends and family members. And uh, and so I've always felt, you know, and and speaking of Stephen Levine, I met Stephen... Uh, and Andrea Levine, when I was 16, was actually the same weekend they met each other at a, at a retreat. And I knew at that point that I really wanted to work with death and dying because, and I never have really formally as like in hospice or anything, although I've sat at many, many bedsides of, of friends and family members and community members. Um, I'm often called in an informal way to the bedside, but but I knew that the landscape of loss, that death, was this is this deeply sacred ground, and I felt that from the very earliest death I can remember, which was the death of my brother when I was seven, and with each subsequent death, I felt that I was entering holy ground, a, a sacred sphere, as, as holy, as sacred, as numinous as any, anything I had ever experienced through any of the many spiritual practices and, and technologies designed to, you know, attain altered states or higher states of consciousness. Man, death is, it's just immediate, as is birth. I've also been at many births, and it's a very similar feeling of the atmosphere being charged with with the divine. Hmm. I so resonate with that and I'm smiling because uh, I, I get not to be too, too dramatic, but I guess I would say that during the time my wife was ill, Stephen and Andrea Levine saved our lives. Oh. We spent a lot of time with them. And I love them so deeply. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and and they get mentioned by a lot of my guests. <laughs> I bet. Too. Um, so when I was reading your book and, and reading about that, um, you know, your relationship to him and how impactful that was, of course, that did touch me so much. Uh, I met him at a really different time in my life, for sure. 
uh, I think I was in my 40s at that point. But um, that principle of diving into your grief is just so, so helpful in life in general, I think. And most particularly in these moments of catastrophic loss. Yeah, and yet, you know, we, uh, beautiful, and we don't, um, it's, I, I feel like it's really important to point out that diving in and being with it isn't something we do as a spiritual exercise or even a spiritual mm. practice. It, it's, maybe I could read something. Absolutely. We have about two minutes till the break. That's about enough Let's time, read probably. It after the break, and you have to tell me if I'm allowed to use the F word um, on your podcast. As far as I know, you are. Okay. <laughs> I've never been given a rule about it, and it's okay with me. <laughs> I think on you know national radio, it's not okay. I, um, I guess, but, I, you, know, I, you know, because we're talking about your book, um, I want to give people the Rumi quote too. Maybe I'll read that before we go out on break. Yeah, uh, please. Because it really deeply explains the Caravan of Despair, uh, which is, of course, the title of your book. Caravan of No Despair is the title of my yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, wor- worshiper, lover of leaving, it doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come, even if you've broken your vow a thousand times, come, yet again, come, come. When I read that, I thought of Stephen always saying, it doesn't matter how long you forget, only how soon you remember. Mm. Very related kind of quote. Mm-hmm. So it's time for our break now. And listeners, you can go to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to be in touch in any one of many, many ways. And to find Mirabai Star, go to mirabaistar.com, and that's spelled M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Mirabai Starr about her book, Caravan of, Caravan of No Despair, uh, and about the loss of her daughter and um, how that changed her, transformed her. And before the break, Mirabai, we were, uh, you were going to share a piece of reading, and we decided to wait till after the break. Do you want to start there? Sure. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, it's about the, our conversation about being present with what happened to us and kind of what our motivation might be uh, to show up for, for our great losses. So this is from a, a chapter called Heartfulness Practice. With reticence at first and then with mounting courage, I dared to mourn my child. From the very beginning... I suspected that something holy was happening and that if I were to push it away, I would regret it for the rest of my life. There was this sense of urgency, as if turning from death meant turning from my child. I wanted to offer Jenny the gift of my commitment to accompany her on her journey away from me, even if to do so simply meant dedicating my heartbeat and my breath to her and paying attention. And so I showed up. When a feeling I did not think I could survive would threaten to engulf me, I practiced turning toward it with the arms of my soul outstretched. And then my heart would unclench a little and make space for the pain. Years of contemplative practice had taught me just enough to know better than to believe everything I think. How to shift from regretting the past and fearing the future to abiding with what is, in this case, a totally fucked up thing, the ultimate fucked up thing. I sat with that. I did not engage in this practice to prove something to myself or anyone else. I was not interested in flexing my spiritual muscles. I did it for Jenny. My willingness to stay present through this process was an act of devotion. By leaning into the horror and yielding to the sorrow, by standing in the fire of emptiness and saying yes to the mystery, I was honoring my child and expressing my ongoing love for her. It was not mere mindfulness practice. It was heartfulness practice. That is so familiar. Um, you know, I started working with Stephen and Andrea uh, during a period when I was cut off from one of my kids. Um, I, I think that may actually have been the worst grief in terms of how it felt to me that I've ever experienced. 
Yeah. Um, and um, and that idea that it that it's sort of uh, I don't know. I almost felt as if I almost felt desperate for a way in to what was going on for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I and I remember that feeling when you read that. Yeah. The choiceless choice. You have to dive in and investigate and be there. Or or die in a way. Or I die. Mean, <laughs> you know, this the choice seems so stark. Find a way to be with this or just forget it. Yeah. Exactly. And I was also aware that, um, you know, you had talked about uh, your how your family was affected by your brother's death and kind of all of the stuff that came out of that and, you know, difficult relationships and that the spiritual teacher that, that molested you and, and all of that. But I'm aware that when your daughter died, you were solidly loved. It, would that be fair to say that you had someone there for you? Oh, in, you mean uh, the man who I then married? The relationship? Yes. Yes. yes, yes, yes. I did, and um, gosh, that is, I have often wondered if I could have survived it if I had not had this solid, loving person uh, just gently and quietly holding me and not making me do anything in any particular way, not imposing his own sense of of how I'm supposed to be navigating this broken landscape. I think that's just really important. We've been together five years, but we didn't get married until after Jenny died. Mm -hmm. And also I was, you know, smiling because some of the things he agreed, he, he, I don't know, said yes to, like dogs. Uh, (laughs) He didn't previously want it all. Right. (laughs) It's good to have a generous outlook when you're with someone who's grieving, isn't it? <laughs> yes, what can I do for you? I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but he's a nine in the Enneagram, which is, you know, basically, what can I do to make you happy? Yes, I, I, I'm more than familiar. <laughs> I think that I've been told that's me. So <laughs> That you're a nine? Uh-huh. Lovely. No wonder I, I, I like you. What's that? No wonder I like you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, I um, I resonated with that because at this period where I was dealing with the loss of my child, my uh, my wife, who is the one who had the cancer and died, was very there for me mm. in the same kind of way that you describe. And really, it's sort of like. Um, you know, blessings in hell or something. <laughs> I don't right. know how I would have gotten through that either. Well, and and I would like to say that um, we have just welcomed to the world our seventh grandchild just a few days ago. Oh, congratulations. And thank you. And so for those who may be heartbroken for my heartbreak, um, I just want you to know that... that Life has continued to flourish in in our family and bring brings great joy. I mean, I want Jenny back every day of my life. 
but I also have have great happiness in my life and and children and grandchildren and it's uh it feeds me every day. Well, I don't feel as if those are disconnected. I don't know what you think about this, but the people I know in my life who have faced great loss and decided to go through it in the way we're talking about yeah. um, are the most joyful people that I know. Me too, Cheryl. Absolutely, because, you know, I became a grief counselor. <laughs> what else are you going to do when you survive something like that? <laughs> Me too. And, and, and I work with people all the time who, you know, not only do they have this capacity for joy in the face of very simple things, like the, the simplest, um, beautiful moments of life become rapturous for us sometimes, but also they have the best sense of humor of anyone I know. It's like grieving people... The, the veneer has been stripped off and their their tolerance for bullshit is just zero. And so they see the cosmic joke and um, there, aren't, there aren't people I'd rather hang out with than the, those whose hearts have been broken open because they're so radically authentic and often quite funny. There's that and also maybe, uh, uh, I know this isn't just me because I've heard it described before, but... Um, I'm not scared the way I was before. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's there's some level of life of just knowing I can handle it, maybe. Yeah. Um, yes. Or that, that it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. Of course it'll happen. You'll die. It's okay. That's all right. Right. <laughs> but it, it seemed to also reduce my fears of a lot of other things. Social anxieties and things like that. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, there's, it's just not as threatening, I guess, mm-hmm. or, or important, maybe. Yeah, so exactly. There's, there's a relief in that, mm-hmm. reg- regardless of the fact we would not, we would trade back if yeah. such a thing were. <laughs> even mm-hmm. I'd possible. take all my neuroses times 10 if I could have her back, yeah. Yeah. You know, I wanted to talk some about, um, because you you grew up unlike the way most people do grow up, um, in, a, in a very spiritually oriented um, community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I noticed the blessings of that, and I always also noticed kind of some difficulties, maybe, that mm-hmm. came out of that. Um, would you agree? Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk some about the difficulties. Uh, you know, your your parents, since people haven't read the book, it's probably important to say that after your brother died, not that long after, they kind of packed up and moved you all. Right. And eventually into this community. And... What I noticed is uh, maybe that, um, how do I want to say it, didn't, it didn't make them more present to the pain that all of you were experiencing necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, th- could you talk some about that from your perspective now? Um, yeah. The ways in which that particular experience helped and didn't help and you know all of that 
Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, a little historical, cu- cultural context is that Maddie died, uh, Maddie, short for Matthew, uh, Matthew, nickname for Matthew, uh, Maddie died in 1968. So it was, the Vietnam War was really ramping up, and my parents were progressive New York Jews who uh, became very active in the, in the anti-war movement. My mother was a folk singer. Um, they, yeah, so they, they were already kind of inclined toward countercultural lifestyle. And um, after Maddie died, it was like everything became unmoored. You know, there was no ground anymore. Mm. And very soon after that, um, they did uproot us from our suburban Long Island lifestyle, which was already pretty countercultural, as I said, for a number of years at that point. And we traveled around, it was sort of a caravan period in some ways. And so ended to speak, up in, huh? <laughs> right. And we ended up in Taos, uh, Taos, New Mexico, which was kind of a hippie enclave, also very much an um, alternative spiritual center. Uh, so it, it was an artist, they, in those days they called them art colonies, artist colony. Uh, and it it was also the place where Lama Foundation is. Lama Foundation is on the outskirts of Taos, way up in the mountains. And Lama is the place where Ramdas wrote Be Here Now, which is the classic kind of iconic book um, that introduced Eastern philosophy to a contemporary uh, American audience, but really Western audience. And... And so Taos was very much connected with Lama. The school I, I ended up going to, the alternative school that my parents enrolled us in, um, which is a big part of why they chose Taos, was because of this wonderful school, was run at a certain point anyway by the Lama Foundation. And so all of these spiritual teachers were coming through the school, and and it was just like the water we drank, you know, had had yes. Tama Children and Choyam Trumpa Rinpoche and Haridas Baba and Ramdas and elders from the Taos Pueblo and many other known and unknown spiritual figures. But meanwhile, the other part of that countercultural communal lifestyle, and it wasn't at Lama, but just informal communities that developed communal households, is, is drugs. You know, drugs were a big part of, of that alternative lifestyle. Um, you know, not heroin, but, uh, but psychedelics and, and pot and and so in many ways, the adults were pretty checked out. And my mm-hmm. parents in particular had something to check out of, which was the death of their first child. There, was no, there were no Stephen Levines around to say, hey, this is, um, this is something you can be present for and grow your soul through and be yes. of service in the world. Yes. So my father became an alcoholic, although the seeds for his alcoholism certainly were there much earlier than when we came to Taos, but it flourished here in Taos. And and so my father was basically drinking himself to death. He didn't die until many years later, um, but he did, he did abuse his body with alcohol and definitely was not present for, for his children in any kind of parental way. He was kind of an interesting friend, um, mm. but I wouldn't say he was very fatherly at mm-hmm. all. Um, and my mother was, she just became very busy. 
I mean, she wasn't a big druggie. She smoked a lot of pot at that time, not for long. She quit after a few years, but she just was, she was experimenting with her own sexuality and relationships and started an art gallery, and she just was engaged and active, but not really uh, present also as a mother. By the way, she more than made up for that when I in my late teens and has been a fabulous mother ever since, like an incredibly wonderful, present, loving, giving mother. But she did have those few years after Maddie died where she just couldn't deal. And I mm-hmm. understand now that I'm a bereaved mother. I get it. Yes. Yeah. Well, and then the... the, the you know, I was uh, just coming of age at that time, mm-hmm. 68. Uh, I moved to California in 71, mm-hmm. um, you know. And there was this sort of, uh, I, I recall, you know, for instance, when I was 19, I was with someone who was 29. Uh, and there was supposed to be absolutely no difference between, you know, there was sort of a, uh, extreme equality idea, yeah. if you will, um, that didn't take into account things like maturing, and you know, and I sort of saw that too in people kind of trusting you to take care of yourself almost. Exactly. Would you say? That's right. Uh, and so then, maybe not, not as much guidance as you could have appreciated at that point. Right, and it's not that my mother was uh, selfish or narcissistic or uncaring. Um, she she saw me, and she often has, has described this now with regret, but she saw me as being wise beyond my years and just yes. having my shit together, and I did present that way. Yes, I, I, I relate to that. <laughs> yeah. And after Maddie died, I became the oldest. You know, so I've, had, I've been in every position in the family, right? I, I was the youngest when it was just him and me, and then, I, and then my younger sister and brother were born, and when Maddie died, I became the oldest. So I've been the youngest, the middle, and the oldest, and I took on eldest child role with all my might. I was a very serious, very um, mm. overly grown-up, child and then there's also and I'd like to talk about this when we come back for an, from our next break differentiating between psychological things and spiritual things yeah um, that that got very complicated I, I feel for you and I mm-hmm. I've encountered that myself in me and others and I'd really love to talk about that because I think yeah, that's an uh, underlay great. so Listeners, go go find us during the break. You can go to weatheringgrief.com or the host page at Good Grief to at Voice America to find me. You can find Mirabai Star at mirabaistar.com. Back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Mirabai Starr, author of Caravan of No Despair. And before the break, Mirabai, we were, uh, I was saying I'd like to talk about um, the difference between psychological um, breakdowns, I guess, and spiritual states. And um, I was very aware as I, as I was reading that you and your daughter both kind of experienced um had experiences that could be read one way or the other, or maybe both. And I just wondered how you differentiate and how you put those two things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such an interesting question, isn't it? The, the connection between, um, let's say, mental illness and genius whether spiritual genius or artistic or mathematical or scientific, that often people with unusual minds and unusual gifts uh, are grappling also with um, imbalances, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And I've been interested in that for years, even long before I lost Jenny, because so many, because so many great beings also had this great darkness that they carry um, and that often mystical states you know I've been obsessed with the mystics of all traditions my whole life and often mystical states that is states of direct experience of the divine experiences of union of of oneness um, are accompanied by a kind of um, inability to function in the daily world, uh, sometimes anyway. And and so, yes, at a, at a young age, and I think it's because of all the deaths that I experienced and the lack of support that I had for, for integrating those losses as a kid. Um, plus, I was slipped LSD when I was 13. Hmm. Uh, actually, I think I was 12. Yes, I was 12. Um, that triggered 
all kinds of kind of hellish states of dissociation for me, where I would slip into an acid-like state where I couldn't really connect with the regular world and everything was highly intensified and dreamlike. That would happen at the drop of a hat. I write about it in the book. It was very difficult to write about, but it was important because that was another loss in a way, the loss of my innocence, the loss of my sanity in some ways. And that plagued me for years. But it also opened the doors to my spiritual life because kind of like you were describing, Cheryl, with with, um, showing up for your grief, it's like you were thrown into it. You had nowhere else to go except in it. And I think that was true for me with my spiritual life at a young age, 14, you know, after Philip died and I had been having all those acid flashbacks, it just, it pushed me into the arms of, of the spiritual life because I didn't know how else to, to handle it. And, and at least there was a vocabulary in various spiritual traditions from Hinduism to Buddhism to Christian mysticism to Sufism that that affirmed the states that were so frightening to me as being uh, gifts and and fuel on a journey of awakening. And I, I clung to that possibility. And so when Jenny, at, at the age of 14, which was the age where I started my spiritual life, suddenly, uh, just a few days before she died, by the way, this is the other part of, of the book that... You know, I don't often tell people, I, I often tell people my daughter died when my first book, Dark Night of the Soul, came out. She was killed in a car accident. True. But I often don't mention, unless we get deeper into the conversation, that Jenny actually was in the middle of a psychotic break when she died. And that was how she died. She, um, a few days before her accident, she, she had a psychotic break that, um, manifested for her also as a deeply spiritual state of consciousness in which she experienced herself as being kind of an embodiment of the divine feminine, of the divine mother uh, in the Hindu tradition. She'd been exposed to this concept because we were involved and, and still are with, um, with an ashram, a, a Neem Karoli Baba ashram. Neem Karoli Baba, also known as Maharaji is Ramdas's guru who he writes about in Be Here Now. So there's an ashram here in Taos. I'd raised my children there. Jenny was very familiar with that language of the Divine Mother uh, in Hinduism. And so when her psychotic break happened, she, she went into this very beautiful but frightening um, identification with, with the mother goddess energy and I would became aware a couple of days into this that that she was mentally ill that she was having the onset of bipolar disorder I adopted Jenny and her birth mother was severely bipolar that's how she lost her child and so I recognized that that was what was happening with some help from some therapist friends and was trying to get her to the hospital the night that she um, took my car and drove into the mountains and crashed. But Jenny's Jenny's experience, it was yes, it was the onset of bipolar disorder and yes, it was lethal. It was it was it killed her. And I hate it. 
and it mm-hmm. is mental illness, straight and simple, but not actually simple because I saw her. I was with her for those few days, and although I was trying to get her conventional Western help, I also recognized this tremendous um, peace and beauty and um, holiness that was emanating from her. I could not deny that that, too, was real and was true. Mm-hmm. I have a, a good friend, and she does a lot of, of uh, teaching, or used to, on, on um, psychology and spirituality and the intersection. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I remember her telling me once... Um, you can't transcend until you have a self. Right. Um, <laughs> it's not transcendence if you don't have something to transcend from, you know. Yes, so exactly. It, it, that's what I think of about uh, about those experiences so young is that they're not, uh, they don't have a grounding yet, maybe. That's right. Um, um, but they are very real, and that's so confusing, you know, and... It, it seems as if you you got it, but maybe some people around you would would just think um, it was uh, would not see the psychological part of it. Maybe right. I there were two camps of people in my life. There were those who denied the spiritual part and saw it as delusional, Jenny's delusion and mine. <laughs> um, and there were those who felt that if I were to get her medical attention it would medicalize a, a sacred gift and she, for the rest of her life she would be a mental patient and um, it would repress this great gift. So I was, I was stuck between those two poles while it was happening and afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. But for me, they were not mutually exclusive and they still are not. They're connected. They're connected. Yeah, I've I've um, been in a lot of Native American ceremony, and of course that connection is so visceral in those right. in those spaces. And um, the people who lead those ceremonies are definitely experiencing another reality. <laughs> um, That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Indigenous so, people get this. And and um, seem to have ways to attend to the psychological yeah. would you say but it but yeah. it's just a very interesting dilemma to me you know yeah. honoring both yeah exactly Cheryl mm-hmm. thanks for asking about that it was a very significant part of my story our story it, it, it really really is and and you know this the the idea of dark night of the soul um, I was aware as I was reading, you did also still have all the things you'd learned. Um, you just weren't thinking about them. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I guess I would say that about um, the most intense moments of my grief with my wife, that all of the things I had been exposed to helped me immeasurably, and I had to just dive in. That's I couldn't right. be I couldn't be thinking about a whole lot. I had to just be with. It, that's it. That's it. 
I could read you a short passage about that if you if you oh, like. Oh, that would be great. Okay, let's see. Um, let's see. I wonder if this is where I do it. Well, it's it's when I talk about all my spiritual practices failed me. Like there, I had a lifetime. At that point, I'd been on a spiritual path. So I was forty when Jenny died. I'd been on a spiritual path since I was fourteen. Quite a serious spiritual path, um, and and an inter spiritual path. In that was that tongue twister you dealt with at the beginning of <laughs> in your intro mm-hmm. um, of me. Yes, inter spiritual meaning I. My spiritual formation, if you will, was from m- multiple religious and spiritual traditions. So I have walked a path that integrated Hinduism, Buddhism, Sufism, uh, Christianity, Judaism. Really all of the world's major spiritual traditions have been part of my path, and I have deeply practiced, not just studied, but practiced in all of these traditions and had quite a toolbox, you know, at my disposal. But when Jenny died, all of those things uh, went out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I see. Here it is. We have about uh, two and a half minutes left, just to be okay. mindful oh, and, of and then do we have time how much time we've got. Questions? Oh, no, never mind. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not going to read that. Let's, let's but I think what you're saying is important for people who, you know, have any deep um, faith tradition inside of them in any direction, not to expect it to continue just the same way. You know, exactly. the, post-traumatic, the-, the post-traumatic growth people say, you know, it tends to deepen or change. <laughs> You know, and that's that, what the dark night of the soul, you know, five hundred year old teaching is about. It's about letting it all go, all of the the structures that you've built your life on spiritually need to drop into the mystery. And there's nothing like death to plunge us into that emptiness that where our spiritual lives hold us, but it's invisible. I'm remembering. Uh, the story of the swan who has to go into the underworld in hopes of finding beauty, but mm. has no guarantee. <laughs> Thanks yeah. so much for being with me to, today, Murabai. I've really enjoyed it. I hope we oh, can stay time. in touch. Yeah, it went so quickly. All right. It was I know. With you. And, and I hope people will go find Mirabai at MirabaiStar.com, M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R.com. Next week, I'll have Madeline Black, whose book, Unbroken, chronicles her recovery from a rape when she was 13 years old. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.